Do you know what separates a failed business exit from a highly profitable one? Do you want to maximize the value of your business? The Business Exit Stories podcast is the solution. Through a collection of stories told by the business intermediaries who facilitate those transactions, you'll receive the key takeaways from successful and, yes, some not-so-successful business exits. Now is the time to begin to position your business for an exit by implementing key strategies designed to maximize your enterprise value and help you achieve an exceptionally profitable exit. Today we have with us on our podcast, Mike Richmond, an investment banker based in New Jersey. In part one of our two-part interview with Mike, he shares two transactional stories of companies that he has worked with over the years to sell. The first company is one that manufactured orthopedic implants for pets. Yes, you heard me right. Getting a new hip or knee is not now only for yourself, but also for Fido or Fluffy, your pet dog or cat. The company was growing and extremely profitable. So what was the problem in getting the company sold? As Mike walks us through the challenges he faced in getting this company positioned for an exit and finding the right acquiring company, he'll share some interesting insights with you. The story is packed with tons of useful information that any founder or entrepreneur should want to hear about. Next, Mike shares a sweet transaction, no pun intended. Well, maybe there is a pun intended because he shares a story of two women that 25 years ago started a small retail bakery that made sweets in the form of cookies and muffins. They opened their first bakery in Harlem in New York City and over time grew their little cookie and muffin business into a six location operation making real dough. Again, pun is intended. When Mike got involved in this transaction, he was able to increase the offer by nearly 40%. You need to find out what Mike did to create money literally out of thin air. Every business owner should take notes on this episode because if you do things right, you too can do as Mike did and create money out of thin air for your company when you are getting ready to sell it. This is Marvin L. Storm with the Business Exit Stories podcast. Today, we're here with Mike Richmond. Uh, Mike is a little bit different than a lot of folks we've had here on the podcast. He has a specialty investment banking firm, which I'll have him talk about a little bit later here. But uh, Mike, would you just take a few minutes to introduce yourself and where you're located? Well, Marvin, first of all, thank you very much for uh, inviting me to your your podcast. Uh, My name is Michael Richmond. Uh, I work for the DAC Group. As Marvin said, we are an investment bank that caters exclusively to the middle market. We're located in uh, New Jersey, about a half hour outside of New York City. Well, great, Mike. I'm really excited to jump in here and have you share some of the transactional stories you've been involved in. So why don't we uh, get started with uh, talking about a transaction um, that you've had in the last uh, few years uh, that had uh, some of its challenges, but you know was able to eventually consummate in a sale? Sure. Um, well, the first one I'll, I'll, I'd like to talk about is a company that is a little bit different, a little unusual. This company manufactures artificial hips, knees, elbows for dogs and cats. Um, I think we think of of, uh, hip surgery as as a kind of a human event, but actually it's something that can be done with uh, dogs and cats and people actually spend more on their animals 
Um, and some spend more on their animals than they do on their children. So we'll, we'll leave it at that. Um, this company had two partners. Uh, one was an engineer and um, developed patents for these products. And the other really handled more of the back office. Um, they were approached by a strategic buyer um, and quickly realized that um, that buyer was not serious, but it triggered discussions for them to, to consider a sale. Um, and we were brought in to conduct a sale of the company. So this inbound offer that they received, they weren't really thinking about selling the company at the time, but someone reached out and approached them made you know made them kind of a tentative offer and that kind of kicked in the thought process well maybe we should consider what our options are out there um and then you were able to open up discussions with them and really get them sort of oriented to how they needed to start thinking about their company and if they were going to exit what the process was to do that that that's absolutely right marvin they did this this inbound and we're seeing there's a lot of inbound activity going on across all industries right now, where, where many companies are getting unsolicited so, so, solicited offers. They really have no way of, of knowing whether um, they're getting fair value for their company, good value, low value. Um, and uh, but but it's exciting and it, it triggers a thought process. And that's what happened in this case. So we have a situation here. Where we have a founder who's an engineer. Uh, and, you know, since we're talking about implants for pets, which always amazes me, people spend so much money on their pets, but they do. I would imagine that he's an engineer, so he invented some of the implants that uh, became critical to the company's success. So, Marvin, you're, you're spot on. These patents, these products were critical to the company's success, and the patent protection was critical as well. And uh, one of the things we did to prepare the company was to have them review their patents. And for two reasons, one, to make sure their patents were protected, and two, that they weren't violating someone else's patent with their product. Who actually did the review? Uh, was it their own attorneys, attorneys that you brought in that were patent attorneys? Tell me a little bit about that process. So they, when they developed a new product, they typically used a, a, a firm that specialized in patent protection. And what we did is we, we discussed with them, and ultimately this company prepared an analysis and gave an opinion of that their products, uh, in fact, the patents were adequate to protect their products. And two, and just as importantly, that they were not aware of any violation of any existing patents uh, with their products. So the, 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 this company, the technology was really very crucial to the valuation of this company. Well, you know for sure that any buyer, I don't care if it's a financial buyer or a strategic buyer, is going to bring in their own attorneys to make sure that all the things that you listed there are actually valid when it comes to patents. So they were doing this sort of as a preemptive strike based on recommendations that you made to them. Correct. We we think it's very important to be prepared when you sell your company. And in this case, part of their preparation was reviewing the patents. We also had them review their financials, um, 
you know, as, as you'd expect with most companies to make sure that any personal expenses are taken out of the earnings to, to reflect the true value uh, of a company. So we had them do that as well. But this was a unique aspect because of the technology and the patents. We felt that it would be impossible to sell the company without doing this work. And it, t- it takes some time as well to do this work. So tell me a little bit. We have a founder here that's technically oriented. He's an individual that has expertise in developing products and patenting them. Uh, how did the core sort of key man issues here unfold when potential buyers did come to the table? I'm, I mean, was he willing to consider continuing to stay with the company or he's looking just to fly off and lay on the beach someplace? So he was flexible. He liked what he did. And in any, in whether he sold his company and stayed on with them, he liked the idea of dabbling um, and inventing new products. He, he was really an inventor. What he didn't like was a lot of the back office business aspects, the, the accounting, which his partner um, was really involved with. And his partner was uh, aging, which we didn't discuss. And his health was deteriorating. So when this offer came in, um, it, it triggered the process to sell. And it triggered a lot of thinking on, on his part, as well as his partner's uh, part. So what what we really have here are two partners that are at different points in their life. One is a little bit older and is looking really to retire, who handled the back office and kind of the front person who developed all the products but didn't like the operational you know, component of the business and was probably doing a lot more than he wanted to do because of his aging of his partner. Uh, and this was really the motivation, I guess, behind them actually considering an exit because it was kind of good timing uh, for them uh, to look at a different type of structure going forward, which sounds like a pretty good fit for a, a buyer out there, especially perhaps a, a strategic buyer. What type of buyer eventually came to the table? So you're absolutely right. Um, it was a good time, particularly because the the owners were going in two different directions. And it's very important that uh, you have, um, you know, consistency in terms of a company going forward. So um, it was it was a great time to sell. Um, we ended up having a strategic buyer come in, one who knew the space, who um, actually sold products not dissimilar to theirs, but what I would call a lower end product. So they had the premium product in the industry, um, the most expensive product, uh, the best name. But that doesn't mean that you're a bad pet owner if you get a cheaper hip trans, uh, implant for your pet. It just means you're on a different budget. So we actually sold to a a company in the space. It was very, uh, there were a lot of synergies between the two companies. They sold similar products, but not all, not, there were certain products that one sold and the other didn't and vice versa. So now they had an opportunity to sell uh, different products. This company, the, the buyer was based in Europe. They were based in the United States. They were selling to, to, to in different markets. And it was a great way for our client to sell their product more in Europe and the buyer to sell their product more in the United States. So this is kind of like, uh, if you were to look for a analogy, I guess, you could say it's kind of like General Motors. You know, you have the high-end Cadillacs and the lower-end, you know, Chevrolets, uh, you know, both selling this 
same type of product, but to different market segments. And uh, sounds like this was a pretty good fit for the strategic buyer. Was a strategic buyer actually someone in the business that was uh, had founded the business like this group had? Or was this actually a private equity group or a larger company that this was just part of their acquisition strategy? To share a little bit with our audience about uh, who the buyer was. So the ultimate buyer was a private equity, but they had bought their another company in this space that was they were using that as the platform to to buy our company and um, so the the private equity provided the capital for the transaction and the company that they owned um provided the opportunity for synergies and ultimately the private equity firm bought two other companies in this space and uh, the company went public um and really was a a home run for um, my client who retained a certain amount of ownership um, in the new company, in the combined entity. And when it went public, obviously did very well. Okay. So just, just just kind of rewind and kind of summarize what you're talking about here. We have a founder who's technically oriented. A buyer came in that was a strategic buyer, uh, structured a deal that gave equity to the existing engineer, and I assume that his partner, who was a little bit older and had health issues, actually retired from the business, and the engineer stayed on, did the R&D and the development, and was probably pretty happy doing that. And because the private equity buyer was kind of rolling up or acquiring other companies in the space, at some point in time, they were able to package those companies together, and uh, I think you said go public, and you got a much higher multiple. And so the founder that had his original, you know, I don't know what it was, 20, 30% equity, whatever he retained in the company, uh, he probably got as much or maybe even more than his original sales price from the second exit is what you're, you're kind of indicating here. Is that, is that kind of how I'm reading this? Yes, you're, you're reading it absolutely correctly. We're finding that when it comes to private equity, the, they generally, not not always, but 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 as a general rule, like to see sellers remain uh, with some sort of equity in the, if you want to call it the new the new company in terms of new co. And very often they will pay a premium when a company stays in. So they may pay a 10, 20, 30 percent premium. So if a seller decides to call roll or reinvest, um, in the the new company, um, and let's say they invest ten percent or twenty percent, they may get a ten or twenty percent higher valuation. In other words, they're getting for almost for free, so to speak, a continued ownership in their company because the valuation for their company is higher because they're showing that they're they have a financial incentive to make this company a success. Well, I think that's a very good tidbit for our audience here to really start thinking about as they kind of think of who the buyers might be out there for their company. Uh, and part of the exit strategy thinking is really how you want to structure something and stay involved with the company for a period of time and retain some equity in that entity going forward. Because if it, if you do your job and both companies do their job, the acquiring company and and the, you know, remaining, you know, founder staying with the company, uh, you can tend to 
kind of have a second bite at the apple, as, as I've often heard say. So I would like to be curious for you to tell us, Mike, a little bit about, you know, the challenges that you faced here. It sounds like the challenges that you faced was really one of valuation. Uh, did COVID have any uh, impact on, on this company? Well, so it's very interesting you say that. So in, in, in the early period of COVID, if you remember, there was a shortage of uh, protective equipment, the PPPs. And all of that got diverted from the veterinary area to the human area, which obviously makes sense. So it went from veterinary clinics to hospitals. Hospitals, emergency rooms. So they basically shut down for the lack of, of protective gear. And as a result, um, there was a, a uh, really virtual sales declined uh, precipitously uh, during the early period of COVID. But what, what else was happening during COVID is people were, uh, were home, they wanted pets. Um, there was clearly an animals that needed uh, a replacement hip or, uh, or an elbow or, or uh, an ankle. That, that need did not go away. So when the PPP loosened up and vets were allowed to, uh, to conduct surgery, there was actually a, an explosion uh, in demand for their product and veterinary services. So um, we had to, one of the challenges every company faces right now is what, what was the impact of COVID? Did it, did it help their earnings? Did it hurt their earnings? And what are the true core earnings of, of a company and that's one of the challenges in terms of getting a fair valuation. Some companies will get a big bump if you're selling PPP equipment or, or uh, antibacterial equipment uh, uh, solutions. Um, your sales jump during COVID, but chances are they're going to go back down when um, things get to more normal times. So what would be the big takeaways in this transaction, Mike? So I, I think the takeaway from this in many transactions is be prepared. Um, in this case, the preparation was a little bit unusual. We had the standard preparation of preparing the numbers, but at the same time, making sure that their their intellectual property, the patents were in order, uh, because that could have been something that um, could have been a, a you know a big a sticking point in valuation. I think we had two owners here with clearly different um, goals in mind, and you know, how to achieve both where one is essentially able to exit the business and one can continue to run the business. So these things have to be really resolved. You don't want to, you don't want to discuss these and deal with these in front of the buyer, but you really want to do this before you go to market behind the scenes. Especially on the patent issue. I know there've been guests on our show that have, you know, had the whole transaction blow up and, and not close because uh, the pallet, the patents turned out to be invalid and couldn't be protected and there was very little value there and so they couldn't sell so it's a great takeaway and you did your homework so you knew going in uh that there weren't any issues and if there were issues you could they could be addressed so that's that's a great takeaway for our audience whether it's in financials or your contract employment agreements or things of that nature be prepared in doing your homework Okay, Michael, let's kind of shoot over now and talk about a transaction that maybe didn't have as many challenges and uh, turned out well for, for the owner that was selling the company. Uh, share another transactional story with us. 
So I guess, I guess this is this was a very sweet deal, both literally and figuratively. Um, we sold uh, a uh, cookie company, uh, a, a bakery company um, uh, in the New York metropolitan area. Um, they were listed as one of the top 50 foods you need to eat before you die. <laughs> Great title. Well, I, I need to get one of those. Right. And I think uh, Travel TripAdvisor rated them one of the top food, 10 food destinations in, in New York. So this was a retail bakery type of outlet where people came in and bought their cookies and muffins? Right. They picked up their cup of coffee, maybe, but they really were online for the cookies. And they literally had lines out the door um, of established by two really wonderful ladies, two wonderful women who um, started this really as a hobby. So was this like 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago? How long? So it was actually about 20, 25 years that it took for the company to get established. They opened one store actually in Harlem, um, then started moving down the west side um, and started opening more stores. Um, and, and really, the word was largely word of mouth. Uh, really tremendous people, tremendous corporate citizens. I mean, they not only with it do they have a great product, which they charge premium pricing for, I, I may add, but they were really good corporate people. And at the end of the day, you know, every bakery has some leftovers. Obviously, they try to minimize it, but their leftovers went to the food banks. Um, and and um, so the the food banks really had great cookies uh, and, and cupcakes at the end of the day. And it was really sweet. <laughs> it sounds like this was a pretty good deal for them. They really were great corporate citizens. And um, the people really liked to work there. Um, and it was just a great, great atmosphere. So they were actually approached by uh, a very smart uh, strategic uh, a private equity firm that recognized the value of this company. They were already expanding into more locations. At that point, they had about six locations, um, one of which was uh, uh, opened relatively recently and one which was about to open. And uh, this was a model that the private equity firm um, saw could be replicated and the growth could be uh, actually more rapid. So, so the private equity firm was really looking to uh, take what was developed in the New York City metro area and take it to other cities around the country. That was kind of their strategic vision, right? Correct. Exactly that. So they came in and they offered what appeared to be a full valuation of the company. Um, and then they went to a, a lawyer who they engaged and they said, you know, are we getting, are we getting, you know, fair a fair valuation he said look my job is 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 a lawyer i i document a deal but you got to speak to an investment banker to really understand the valuation um we were brought in and on the surface it looked like the valuation you know was a full value uh, but we always caution that a company shouldn't be valued just on the basis of a multiple of the numbers and in this case, there were several factors that uh, weren't included in the valuation. For one, they just opened a new store that had a lot of pre-opening costs and really didn't reach its full level of sales. So you had a kind of a double, in that situation, you had a double whammy. You had 
earnings being depressed because of opening cost, as well as the revenue had just started to to grow. Exactly. So that was one thing. And the other thing is, if you take a look at this company, their earnings are growing you know, rapidly, 5%, 10%, 15%. Each year, the, the earnings growth is accelerating because their existing stores are doing well and growing, and they're adding new stores. So yes, the valuation was at the high end, but didn't take into account the fact that the, the uh, earnings were really understated because of these, quote, one-time events, the new store and, and, and the pre-opening costs for, for the other store, as well as the growth the high growth and the growth potential. And as you said, Marvin, absolutely, this, this, this product can be taken to Boston, Washington, you know, all around the country. And in fact, they, they, they started doing that already. So we came in and uh, we were able to get the valuation raised about 30%, which the owners were thrilled. But just as important as the top line, it was the structure of the deal that each deal, it's its not only the, the top line that matters, but it's really what the net after taxes are to the buyer. And we brought in their accountants and um, you know discovered that the structure of the deal was really not tax advantageous to our sellers. So we had the deal restructured. There's always a trade-off because what's advantageous to sellers is very often disadvantageous to buyers. But we had a negotiation, we had a much better structure. So the net increase, so we had the top line increase by 30%, but the bottom line after taxes increased even more than that, probably about 40%. And in addition, in this case as well, the owners retained uh, some equity and the terms of that equity, whether it's equal to the buyers or at a different class is very important. And we were able to negotiate the terms of the equity to be a, more advantageous to our client. As so well. it sounds like in this situation, having, you know, someone to give you or give a seller input on to where the real value is in their company. And there may be some unlocked value tied up in the company that either the buyers or even the founders of the company might not truly appreciate what that means on a projected going forward basis and having someone come in that has some experience uh, and takes a look at the financial statements. And as you said, I think this is very interesting where you said that, you know, you had a new location that is opening that, you know, and retail locations in New York City. Uh, I'm somewhat aware that you can have 500 million $2 million opening cost, you know, to, to build out because of the labor structure and permits and the time frame to open locations in New York. Those can be really high. And, um, you know, that's being thrown into the pot of earnings and that's depressing earnings as well as that location hasn't had those earnings materialized to offset those costs. So what may appear and you said, I think you said that the offer that was on the table by this unsolicited offer that came in was fair based on those existing numbers. But you were able to peel back the onion a little bit and and really determine that there was some unlocked value there. And when you adjusted 
and accounted for that unlocked value and included it in the going forward projections, you increased the valuation and the sales price, you said 30, 30 or more percent, right? Correct. And you, you know, you touched on something very important and there's a broader uh, point here that I just like to bring, bring across Marvin. And that is, um, buyers look at future earnings rather than historical. The historical earnings are there to justify the future, but the buyers are looking to the future. And as sellers, it's important that the sellers look at future value as well. If the, if the value is, is growing up rapidly, there should be a premium price. If sales are growing rapidly, excuse me, there should be a premium valuation. And similar, if, if earnings are flattening out or declining, well, that's going to result in a lower valuation as well. So I think people make a mistake and look at historical values. It's really the future values that are key to to uh, a full valuation of a company. Yeah, I think it somewhat depends. You know, if you have more Main Street type of businesses that are small, smaller value, lenders tend to look at historical values uh, and lend on the historical, where a strategic buyer tends to look more, why am I buying this? I'm buying this because of what I'm going to do with the company and what it means to, to me. And so I, I think there's a little difference in the type of company that you have and who the buyers are. No, but Mike, what would you say is the real takeaway here for our audience? What, what could they take away and learn from this, this transaction? So I think when, when your audience is approached with, with an offer and it may seem like it's great and you do a little research and you find out it, you know, it, it seems to be a high offer for your business. Um, bring in some professionals to help you understand that offer. In fact, number one, is it truly, you know, a fair offer? And also, is the deal being structured correctly to maximize uh, your valuation? Well, I think that's that's a great takeaway. You know, a lot of times there's more than just the numbers and you have to really understand what the motivations of the buyers are and the type of buyers that are at the table because how you present that offering the sale of the company to the buyer uh, is about as important as as really the numbers are. And, and as you said, the structure can make a huge difference too. Well, these are some great takeaways, Mike. If, uh, if someone wanted to reach out and get a hold of you, uh, how would they contact you? What would be the best way? Best is to, is to email me at mrichmond, like Virginia, M-R-I-C-H-M-O-N-D, at DAC group, that's spelled D-A-K, group.com. All right. Great. Well, Michael, uh, thank you for being with us here today and sharing your transactional stories. I think there have been some great takeaways for our audience here that as they start thinking about their transition and exit strategies that uh, they can learn from these takeaways you've provided with here today. So this is Marvin L. Storm. We'll see you on our next episode with Mike. Thank you, Marvin. Thanks for listening to the Business Exit Stories podcast. For more information or to reach out to today's guest, visit www.businessexitstories.com for more details. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast from your favorite podcasting platforms. And remember, maximizing business value at the time of exit doesn't happen magically. It takes planning.